Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Calls for safe zones around Leinster House and government buildings after yesterday's angry protests. Outrage is growing over these scenes which faced politicians, our actors, workers and journalists outside our national parliament. What happened out there was a direct manifestation uh, and was an attack on democracy itself. It's about looking at situations as they arise, reviewing them and seeing what more can be done. And a real-life succession drama. The sun sets on media tycoon Rupert Murdoch's reign as boss of his vast business empire. has been called an attack on our democracy. Yesterday's angry scenes outside the Doyle could lead to the creation of so-called safe zones that would curtail protests around Leinster House and government buildings. Politicians, our ACTA staff and journalists were jostled and jeered as they made their way in and out of our national parliament. Let's take a look at some of those scenes. Well, on my first panel tonight, I'm joined by Fine Gael Senator Barry Ward, Labour TD Aon O'Reardon, Louise Byrne, political correspondent with the Irish Daily Mirror, Fianna Fáil Senator Lorraine Clifford-Lee and Liam Herrick from the Irish Council of Civil Liberties. Uh, Louise, I'm going to come to you first. I suppose they've had maybe 24 hours to absorb what happened yesterday because it was, you know, unexpected. What was the feeling in Leinster House and amongst politicians and Iraqis workers and indeed journalists today? Yeah, today I think I think everyone was in a state of shock. I think yesterday when it was all happening, you everyone was just kind of going around and being like, Jesus, isn't this mad? And then I think it was only today that it actually set in what had happened. And I think a lot of people arrived to work yesterday morning. I know I was there at about 10 a.m. and I wouldn't exactly say the crowd was timid. It had been 
quite agitated from a very early stage, but I suppose you would say it was timid compared to what it later transpired to be. And I mean, from 10 o'clock, we were the journalists, we were outside watching with our photographers. We were being called scumbags, we were being called traitors. So like they were at it from early on. I then went to a plinth call with the Labour Party. Aon was there and we had to actually move the plinth call away from the plinth. We had to move it to a space where we could actually hear what they were saying. And even at that, we were struggling to hear. And then I suppose it was around lunchtime was getting more and more agitated. People were trying to go in and go out. People were actually being stopped from going in. They were getting their way through the crowds. The people who were protesting were saying, no, I'm not actually going to let you through here into Leinster House. And the guards were going, yeah, you actually better walk around to Marion Street. And then from that, it escalated. And I guess the big kind of focal point of the day was what happened at about four o'clock when those protesters moved around from the barricaded area on Kildare Street around to Marion Street where there was no barricades. They blocked the gate. There was cars full of politicians. I think we counted up to 14 or 15 at one stage, queuing to get out for up to two hours. And it was really, really, people just didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what the guards were doing. They weren't allowed past a certain point in the Marion Street car park. So you couldn't even see down what they were doing. It actually got to a point where the journalists, myself and some of my colleagues, we were out watching. And some of the security staff and the ushers in Leinster House came up to us and said, you actually have to get back inside because it's actually getting to a point now. It's actually a security risk having you here. And, and what we've heard today is that there is going to be a security review. Who's going to carry that out and, and what's it exactly going to look at? Yeah, there was no hanging around on this, I guess, today. And that security review has started as of this morning. And we heard Ken Corley, Sean O'Friel, we heard him there. We heard him in Leinster House earlier calling this an attack on our democracy. He met with the Assistant Guard Commissioner for the Dublin Metropolitan Region, Angela Willis, today. There was other members of the Oireachtas, kind of the higher authorities in there with them. My understanding of that is they spoke about what happened yesterday and they kind of spoke about what has to be done going forward. And I think there's a lot of suggestions coming from politicians about what exactly that can be. There's been some calls for safe zones or Jerry Bottomer, the care look at the Shannon, he called it a sterile, sterile zone where perhaps you would cut off maybe from Buswells down Molesworth Street up to Cudair Street and around again by Marion Square and the Marion Street entrance and government buildings on those really busy days, things like yesterday, things like budget day to try and keep people safe. But then again, that has been criticised by some quarters saying, well, that curtailing access to Parliament. So this is going to be a really tricky balance because at the end of the day, it comes down to a right to protest, but then also people's right to not only attend Parliament, but feel safe in their workplace. You wouldn't have felt safe in your workplace yesterday, Lorraine. You were one of these TDs that are just trying to leave Leinster House uh, but you had your child in the back of your car, didn't you? Tell me what happened and how you felt. That's right. Well, I suppose I had two um, separate instances yesterday, earlier on in the day when I unfortunately ended up in the crowd on, on the Kildare side, uh, Kildare Street side of Leinster House and needed a guard escort to get me out of the crowd because it was extremely intimidating. But then yesterday evening at around four o'clock, I came back into the Leinster House campus and I had my daughter with me um, and just to pick up my car and to, to get home. And it was just at that moment that the crowd had actually moved around to the front, uh, or what we'd call the Marion entrance, and uh, blocked it. So we got blocked in there. Uh, so we were in our car for two hours, uh, waiting uh, to, to leave as part of a convoy, waiting for extra guard, the reinforcement. It was a very frightening experience. And, you know, my daughter, uh, she was very good. We, we kept her spirits up while we were there, but she ended up having to lie on the floor of the back of the car and I covered her with the towel as we were leaving uh, because we didn't know what we were going to face as we emerged out uh, on the Marion Street side. So it was really, really intimidating. I think everybody felt... Uh, 
that this was an unprecedented situation from early morning right through to the evening. It was around six o'clock when we could actually leave the campus. This was something beyond the protests that you see at Leinster House on a, on a regular basis? Every day that's, uh, that we're in Leinster House, there is a protest of some sort there. I've uh, often gone out and met protesters, um, spoke to them about their issues, <laughs> taken notes, brought their issues back into, into the Shannon, into the parliamentary party meetings that we have. Uh, so I'm very much in favour of protests. I've often participated in protests uh, down through the years myself, and it is a fundamental right. But when you're stopping people accessing Parliament when you're using intimidatory language, this crosses the line. It's anti-democratic and was attack on our, on our parliamentary democracy. Uh, Liam Herrick, was it a protest that we saw yesterday? Well, the right to peace of protest is fundamental and it is very broad. You know, I mean, it, it right encompasses people offending other people, upsetting them, causing a lot of disruption. We've seen a lot of that. But it is a right to peaceful protest. There is a limit. If a protest sets out to be violent and to cause public disorder under human rights law and under the constitutional interpretation of that, you know, you are outside of that protection. You no longer can claim that right to peaceful assembly. And clearly, uh, the events yesterday, there were criminality involved, there's criminal prosecutions being considered at the moment, and it would seem that the essence of the event yesterday was outside of that peaceful protest. But I think the context is important here. You know, over the years, we've seen very large protests. Well, yes, it was quite small. I mean, it was very violent, but it was small. These people don't enjoy any significant level of support. In fact, I think it was a complete failure from the perspective of the people organising yesterday. They were talking about having thousands of people out there shutting down the parliament in a big way and making a statement. It clearly showed that they don't have any support, but they could disrupt it because they were so violent. The question is, do we abandon a very long tradition of democratic rights and participation around our national parliament and government buildings because of the actions of a very small group. So you would or, be anti this idea of safe zones? I, I think that changing the law, changing the way we police the area, I think is a very drastic step. So I do you think, think that the policing response yesterday was the right one? I think, I think we'll need to see a full report on that. But in fairness to the, the guards, they were the target of what happened yesterday too. They achieved the first goal of yesterday, which was to keep everybody safe and avoid serious industry injury, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Now, it's certainly when you have a situation where members of the Oireachtas who are elected have difficulty getting in and out of the parliament, as well as members of the press, then that, that's not acceptable. And I think from the Guards' perspective, that's not the outcome that they wanted. But I think if the Guards conduct a review and Leinster House Security conduct a review, there may be ways in terms of the intelligence the Guards have about these groups the tactics that are deployed and the resources that are available when you can foresee this type of thing happening. Because yesterday's protest was pretty well flagged. I mean, the main groups involved, and we know who they all are, they're involved in library protest and refugee protests as well. They had told everybody for quite a bit of time what they were planning, you know, okay, so, and, so and Barry the tactics Ward, as well. Would you agree there should have been a different policing presence, policing plan yesterday, given the fact that, as Liam said, this was, was well flagged? Well, it's not, I'm not a policing expert, so it's not for me to say what the guards should have done, but I do think it's tremendously important that it's not allowed to happen again. As Liam says, this is a small number of self-appointed people who don't represent anyone. They also don't represent anything because nobody really knows 
what exactly it was that they were demonstrating about. And I would not use the word protest. I think a feature of a protest is that somebody comes with an identifiable issue, with an identifiable solution or something that they want the government or whoever it is to do about that. These people had none of those things. They were a mishmash of groups who wanted to cause public disorder and nothing more. The notion that they would now be allowed to continue to interfere with the Oireachtas, I think, is appalling. And I wrote to the Garda Commissioner yesterday to say exactly that, that the Garda must be ready to deal with this, whatever way they, they see fit to do that. And I think we can have great faith in the Garda Shikona because they have proven a capacity to deal with these situations in a responsible and even-handed way. And they're unique, I think, amongst police forces in Europe that way. They exercise their discretion. They, Leo Vraker talked about policing by consent, and that's what we've seen from Garda Shikona. But that's when you're dealing with reasonable people who will listen. Yesterday, you were not dealing with reasonable people and and therefore the Guardi have to be able to step it up when the time comes. Yeah, because I'm looking at your letter here to uh, the Commissioner where you said the time has come for Angarda Siakana to step up and protect our democracy or the credibility of Angarda Siakana will be substantially eroded if action is not taken. So in very practical terms, what does that mean? What I'm saying is that if these groups think they can behave with impunity, if they think they can come back in a week, a month, a year, whatever, and do the same thing again, it emboldens them to do it and it escalates what they're doing. I agree now that there was a, a there small were a number, number of people. Yesterday. There were a number of arrests and that is a matter for the guards and, and I, you know, the guards will deal with that the way it should be done. And I don't want to comment on any of those cases. But what I'm saying is, as has been pointed out, there was a situation where the actual representatives of the people, people who were actually elected to represent the people of Ireland, were in interfered with in terms of not being able to get into the parliament or not being able to get out of the parliament. That is, as the Ciarán Corda said, an attack on our democracy. It is that. that so is do you a serious agree with this thing. idea then of sterile zones or, or stiff So you um, don't? No, because I think protest is really important. And I think it's really important for politicians, actually. People, it, one of the great things about Irish politics is that people have access to their politicians. Nobody has any difficulty getting in touch with their councillor, TD, senator, whoever it might be. And they don't have difficulty getting into Leinster House either. And that's the way it should be, which is why we need to have wraparound policing and the Guardi must be ready because... What um, is that, so to push you by word, yeah. what does wraparound policing? I mean, the, there was a guard of presence there was a guard there of presence, yesterday. absolutely. And, and, and this is not a criticism of Gorda Siakona or any individual guards who I think were in a very difficult position yesterday and, and handled it very well. But at, at a certain point, as I say, elected representatives were prevented from doing their jobs. That cannot happen again. So if you have a situation where a similar protest occurs or a similar demonstration occurs, because it's not a protest, or that kind of violence is threatened, the Guardian need to be able to step in because policing by consent doesn't work with these people. Are you talking water cannons no, to I'm not. And, people look, or and again, charges? This, that, which or... is why I think the Guardian have a fantastic record of dealing with these situations with great skill. Um, and we saw that during the, the COVID lockdown when you had similar elements, people who, who were suggesting there was some kind of conspiracy around COVID or that kind of thing. The Guardian dealt with them very, very well. But there is a point where the Guardi have to have a situation, and I am not a public policing, a, a, a public order policing expert, and I don't purport to be, but they need to have a system in place which means that they can deal with it comprehensively to ensure that that kind of, of intimidation and interruption is not allowed yeah, to happen. Ian, what's your view? Well, I think anybody who was surprised by yesterday's events hasn't been watching what's been happening in Irish society over a prolonged period of time. I think we have to put yesterday's events in perspective. If you're a library worker, you'd be wondering why people aren't talking about your safe zone or your security. We had libraries in Cork that were forced to shut because of prolonged protests and intimidation of library workers. We've had people set fire to tents in which migrants were living around the corner from Leinster House. 
okay? We've had people openly at, you know, protests saying that the only way to deal with the migration issue is to burn them out. Now, I don't think it is a good look for politicians to think that because our space has been invaded by what was, happened yesterday, which was disgusting and was vile and was nasty, that we, are, we have to have a separate set of rules for us than for other vulnerable members uh, of society. Now, this has been bubbling up for quite a long time. And I would think that this is a wake-up call, not just for us in terms of uh, how to manage operations in Leinster House, but it's how these groups are being stoked, encouraged, often by members of the Oireachtas themselves, but how we have not dealt with it heretofore. And when you have people openly encouraging arson, when arson actually happens around the corner from Leinster House, when libraries are shut down because of protest, that was the moment, if I might suggest, for letters to the Garda Commissioner about policing issues, about very vulnerable people. Now, in terms of Leinster House and safe zones, I would agree with Barry on this. I don't agree with that. I do think it's actually difficult to protest at Leinster House. The, the Galair Street gates do not allow for gatherings of people. It's awkward. The path is narrow. I think there is an opportunity potentially for some kind of a civic space on Malsra Street or perhaps at Merrion Square for that kind of civic engagement where we could feel free to walk and mingle. Now, it is very rare for what happened yesterday to happen. I've been in Leinster House since 2011. There has been a number of occasions where we felt unsafe. It's not the first time. Did you say again. this is off the back of a series yeah, of protests but, or gathering or demonstrations yeah, but that have become more intimate? But my central point is this. It is, it is vulnerable groups in society who are being targeted right across the country, which should have been the focus of the political system heretofore. Because it came to our door yesterday, we shouldn't, oh, beginning now, to talk about how we should react. Okay, and I should say we did have an extensive debate here on the programme uh, when there was that burning arson incident uh, in Dublin about the rights and the safety of the refugees uh, and, and the people who were behind those protests. We did I know, have but, that but, conversation, but, but an extensive I know, but, conversation here. It certainly wasn't this, ignored this is also by being, this programme. I just want to let Barry Ward uh, in there. Your response to that, it's only because these protests have now come to the door of politicians that you have put pen to paper and written to the Garda no, Commissioner. I, I was very critical both at the time of the burning out of the tents and of the, uh, in respective libraries. I think it is appalling. The difference is, I suppose... The Garda, Garda I didn't write to the Garda Commissioner, no. I wrote to the Garda Commissioner yesterday because it was on my doorstep and I, I could see the effect. I saw it very Mass much deliberately. And um, the, the, I suppose the, the point that I was making was that it, there, there is a very important line that is being crossed there. Um, it is not the case, and I say this very often, we cannot have a guard on every corner every time, nor would we want to. That would constitute a police state. But what you had in a situation yesterday where the guards were there and you still had difficulties with the manner in which people were behaving um, that were, to my mind, unacceptable, which is not to say, Aon, that what happened in libraries, which was abhorrent, is absolutely contrary to everything I believe about the freedom of expression and freedom of speech, and the people who are stirring up, including the members of the Iraqis to whom we've heard, the people who are stirring up that kind of misinformation, I think should hang their heads in shame. But I suppose the point that I'm making is the Gardaí have a role. I, I, I think they carry out their role excellently, but they need to understand that if so they... So tougher policing well, is what you're looking for? Where the time, where the time merits it, yes, because the danger is if you don't have it, you're sending them
the message that they will get away with it, and that can't be the All message. All right, Liam Herrick, would you agree tougher policing Look, is the answer here? I, I think that there's a review going on with the guards to, to report on what happened yesterday. It could very well be something the policing authority will look at too. I wouldn't prejudge what the outcome of that will be. In fairness to the guards, sometimes situations are dynamic and they're not always predictable. But it could very well be that there are nuances in way this policing can be enhanced without necessarily getting heavy-handed about this. I do think, though, that we do need to look at who these groups are yesterday. Mm. And for public figures, elected representatives and other people who have been associating with these groups exactly. and who have been uh, amplifying their messages, their conspiracies about governments within governments or a, a, an LGBT agenda or a great replacement theory, and, you know, they should really... They can't now say that they don't know who these people are and what they're about. And I think that, you know... There's free speech and there's free political speech, but there's also consequences. You have to take responsibility when you share a platform with and amplify people who are clearly stoking up people to act in a violent way towards elected representatives. And the gallows that was put up in Kildare Street yesterday was clearly sending out a message to the crowd that was there, some of whom are very vulnerable and impressionable people, that there's such a conspiracy of these politicians against you and your children that they deserve to be treated with extreme violence. Mm. Well, that's a really disturbing situation. And anybody that doesn't distance themselves from that, I think, has some responsibility. Um, what's coming up next month is Budget Day. It's often a day of protest mm -hmm. in and around Leinster House. Are you more concerned about that this year, Lorraine? Look, people have a legitimate right to protest, and I'd prefer them protesting actually at Leinster House mm -hmm. than coming to our, our own family homes. Yeah, uh, this is the place where people should come. And I think it's a tradition on Budget Day that people show up and they show their support or their dissatisfaction of uh, what's going on. But I think Liam is right. We need to look at what is happening, that, that, that the, the political narrative is changing, that it's almost the conspiracy theories are taking over. And we have political parties that need to take responsibility in groupings within Leinster House as well that are pushing conspiracy theories uh, and, and pushing really nasty agendas. And we need to be able to call them out. And actually, you know, the, even the debasing of politicians and nicknames, nasty, vile nicknames that are given to various politicians to dehumanise them, mm -hmm. which makes them more vulnerable to attack. And we need to call on every political party to sign up to even almost a charter of how we're going to deal with other politicians, because it's only going to increase. We've got local and European elections next year and then into a general election. And we need to nip this in the bud because I, for one, am very, very fearful that we'll have a situation like we've seen in, in other countries, that we'll have a fatality among the, the political uh, staff or our elected representatives. If I might say, and this is the point I wanted to make earlier, look, we are uniquely placed in the European context of not having our general elections dominated by the issue of immigration, for example. And I think every political party should take a level of credit for that. Okay, It doesn't come up. Uh, as a political debating point. But there are members of the Oireachtas who need to be called out for using rhetoric about freeloaders and hoodlums and blackguards, as a deputy from Kerry once described asylum seekers. We have a deputy from Wexford who said they need to be reprogrammed. Uh, we have, we have a bile coming out on social media from certain senators of independent groups about versus, uh, various different culture war uh, agendas, who then yesterday were fulsome in their condemnation of what happened. It's just not good enough. And there are sensitive issues in Irish society about migration policy, about sex education in schools and all the rest of it. And there's a nuanced way to discuss these things. But there are people trying to gain political kudos by pressing the buttons of those individuals yesterday outside Leinster House. And they need to be called to account for that because they are responsible 
for whipping up the emotions that we saw outside Leinster House yesterday oh, and look at outside libraries and outside uh, accommodation centres. Uh, we're going to stay with this subject. My thanks to Lorraine and Liam for joining me for part one. The others will be staying with me. And next, we're going to be looking at the policing of these protests and what is behind them. Do stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're very welcome back. Barry Aon and Louise are still here with me and I'm also joined now by Sunday Times crime correspondent John Mooney and scientist and author Dr David Robert Grimes who is also a disinformation expert. You're both very welcome to the programme. Uh, John, what intelligence do the Gardaí have about these types of protests and protesters in Ireland, this particular movement? It's a fairly significant intelligence operation in that targets people with extremist views. And that ranges from people with extreme Republican views that believe in the use of violence, and it all, but it also it incorporates people such as those who organised a protest yesterday who may be advocating a type of violence. And the intelligence gathered through those systems is distilled and analysed and there's various, I suppose, takes put on it. Uh, a lot of these uh, groups have almost become like subcultures online that they communicate with each other quite a lot. They're on various um, you know, types of social media, encrypted uh, chat rooms, etc. So they're, they're using a variety of different, and sometimes they will, you know, discuss a certain event on one platform and move on to an encrypted messaging system to actually discuss setting up something. But in an Irish context, it should be stated that most of these groups, their organisation is done very openly. It's not, mm. you don't have to particularly go de digging deep to find it. And but are they the, being constantly monitored by the Guardian? They would be monitored on a 24-hour basis, both digitally and in some cases, if there's a reason to believe they're going to involve themselves in kinetic violence, then they, they, there would be physical surveillance also. But again, they represent a, a, a type of threat amongst a very wide type of threats that the, the, the guards would deal with and the military on a daily basis. I think it's, it's important when you think about these groups and these people, there's a lot of ideologies within the, this movement. No two groups share the same viewpoint on anything. They're very desperate, they're very eclectic, 
mix of people. And they're not really a threat to the democracy of the state in the, the way a terrorist movement would be or a hostile state or something like that. But they're a local and locational sort of problem, security problem to deal with. And, that, and multiple factors come into that. So, for example, we saw what happened outside the doll. They make a big nuisance of themselves, get quite muscular in their approach to their protest. They will, you know, um, turn up at, say, a reception centre uh, for migrants coming in and they will act and behave in a similar way. The only difference is, is there aren't television cameras there to film this, etc. And people who are coming in as refugees are getting the exact same type of treatment as uh, some of our par- parliamentarians received. So I think you have to contextualise it. They're a problem, but they're not. The, the problem may be that some people would fear they, they could become. Given that level of intelligence, given the fact, as you said, this is probably quite an open conversation um, that's being had. Did that intelligence fail yesterday? I don't... I, it's very difficult to say that for the simple reason is a lot of that activity, 200 to 300 people at a protest outside the doll, isn't a very large group of people. Um, it's actually quite small. And the guards have handled, the guards of Pierce Street have handled much, much bigger uh, and more... Uh, 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 I suppose, physical types of protest movements there beforehand. I think probably what happened is that sometimes if something goes south, it can go quite quickly. And I think the guards took the view that, and they're trying to police a very difficult situation with these groups, where they're trying to contain them, trying to adopt a hands-off approach. So that trying not, not to provoke them further. Yeah, but you're also trying not to um, encourage people to engage in more physical contact with them. So you're standing, you've got officers there st- st- staring people down, etc., um, and trying to protect people and, and let parliamentarians go about their business. Um, it obviously, there was failings in that. But in saying that, they didn't break into the doll. They didn't get into the doll. There wasn't armed units deployed within the the doll to protect people or anything like that. It's a very rowdy, difficult group of people to control. And to be perfectly frank with you, if you've gone to some of the protests outside immigration reception centres, it's it, that is the scene you're confronted with. And any journalist who's dealt with this would know full well uh, uh, about the types of... Well, we're all familiar with the types of scenes um, various people would have seen yesterday. Um, David, as John said there, it's, you know, 200 people yesterday, but it, it's generally kind of a, a disparate group of people. You know, nobody was actually quite sure what the protest was about yesterday, but there must be something that unifies them. There is a few things, and I think we have to see it in a broader context. So one of the things you correctly point out is a protest is usually organised. This seems to be a mob motivated by anger. But if you look at the psychology of why people engage in conspiracy theories and in these kind of very simple narratives, believing in a conspiracy theory like a lot of the ones that were being propagated yesterday means never having to say you're sorry, never having to take responsibility and being able to find a simple us versus them narrative to blame someone. This is one of the reasons why if you ask different protesters there, as John said, the ideologies were all over the place. Uh, you probably wouldn't get a single unified answer on why they were there, apart from a feeling of anger. The other thing that motivates conspiracy theories and people who gather and congregate like this is a little bit of a sense of control over what they're doing, and also, and a massive factor in this, is narcissism. For example, this gives people meaning. They go out there and think they're doing something important. Maybe their lives have not been perfect at this point. Now they have a simple point of anger. It's reductive cause, it's fallacious, it's, it's all wrong but they can point at refugees or the LGBT community, whoever is the scapegoat that week, 
and say it's us versus them. It's entirely fictitious, but it's giving a voice to anger. The and anger's also, not well directed, though. There was also this sort of line yesterday, and I've seen it in other protests too. It's like, we know something that you don't know. We're party to information and you just haven't been enlightened yet. You are absolutely correct. Nail on the head there, because that is actually the single biggest motivator of... Now, there are, I should clarify, people can fall victims to conspiracy theories. You can be looking for meaning and fall into them. But the kind of people we saw at the door yesterday, they enjoy that feeling of superiority. And that ties in with the narcissistic traits you associate with these beliefs. But they can become violent and they can go further than they should. So it's something we have to be very cognizant of as well. Um, have we been cognizant enough about this threat, albeit a small threat, as you said, uh, John? Or have we been a little bit complacent politically? I don't think so. I think any politician who's online, and I think probably we all are at this stage, will have gotten abuse, um, be it on whichever platform it is, uh, expounding conspiracy theories. And some of the, the rhetoric you saw from people in the street yesterday, which to my mind is largely meaningless because it's it's not based in fact. But I think we've all received abuse. In all, in so how has it been tackled then? Um, well, that's another question. I mean, And there's, there are different ways to tackle it. Obviously, at a policing level, that's not a matter for us. Um, certainly within Leinster House, there has been there have been concerns about the, the personal safety of some people. Uh, protests have occurred outside individual TDs and ministers' homes. Mm -hmm. And I think there has been a move by the Count Corla and the Commission for the Oireachtas uh, to deal with that at a security level. But um, I don't actually think that we have properly tackled it um, as a community, uh, either as elected people or, or, or a broader community, in terms of the misinformation that we see online and challenging it when we hear it from people, particularly in respect of the, some of the things that were spoken about there, um, be it LGBT or the trans community or COVID or the, and the, the myths that are propagated about that. I think there probably is a greater role for all of us to call out that nonsense. OK, so it hasn't been done properly, I think, or sufficiently from a political point of view. But big tech has also been let off the hook here, hasn't it, Aon? Oh, massively so, massively so, and, and they need to take responsibility for that. But um, I sometimes wonder if we're so concerned about the, the corporation tax receipts we get from these large corporations that we have a kind of a, uh, a, a soft glove approach with them. But I would say this much, though, about, about the government responsibility or political responsibility. It's hard to tackle misinformation when there's no, gov no government information. It's harder for us on doorsteps to answer questions about you know, migration policy or asylum policy or sex education policy uh, or hate crime legislation when there isn't that information stream uh, from government. And we've found even at a local level that those online have had more information about the opening of a reception centre or an accommodation centre for, for asylum seekers than we local representatives had. And it was up on Facebook three, four days and we were then trying to, uh, trying, trying to you know, after the fact, uh, deal with it. And also the other issue though we have to, we have to point to is that we are also dealing with a demoralised Garda Síochána force who are undermanned and, and not really have the resources to deal with a vastly changing uh, criminal landscape, which now has migrated online and it's much more difficult to, to, to have surveillance over. Is there any fear, do you think, at a political level, Louise, that this movement might actually grow and could go so far as to field candidates in the, the forthcoming elections? I think it is in the back of people's minds at the moment. We have seen people who would be accused of being far-right run for election before, and now they have never been elected. But there does seem to be this growing movement behind them. And I think what you are seeing is a lot of disinformation 
disenfranchisement with the government and people are saying, you know, housing is an issue, healthcare is an issue, cost of living is an issue and they are of an opinion that the government is not doing anything for them. So where do they turn to? They turn to these people and as it was said correctly earlier, oftentimes they're preying on vulnerable people. So I think it is in the back of people's minds. You know, you have the local and European elections next year. The general elections are either this time next year or March, you know, it's in the next year and a half anyway. So it is playing on the back of people's mind. And I think it's said time and time again that we have been very lucky that we haven't gone down that route uh, that some of our uh, European counterparts have. And I'm wondering, do you have any idea, David, as to why that is? I mean, it has been slow to grow legs in this country. I mean, we don't have that far-right political movement the way through in France, for I th example. I think that's a misconception. I think that this has been bubbling on the surface for some time. I've seen it for 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is it breaks through every now and then. You need to get a critical mass. But even today, The Guardian published the fact that a third of European voters now uh, swing to populist parties, either hard left or hard right. So if you have people looking for simple answers to complicated questions, this is where things like this can get wings. It's also important to go back to your point about social media regulation. Mm. Social media companies are now bigger than governments. The only regulation we can get, and I agree we need it, is going to be pan-European, because more than that, anger is the single biggest motivating factor of these mm. things. They'll get you angry online to make you do this stuff. And uh, that's... John, I just, sorry, I just want to bring John back in here because we're just going to run out of time on this, unfortunately. The, the policing challenge now for the Gardaí. I mean, they are coming in for some criticism for how they handled it yesterday, but they were in an unenviable uh, position yesterday. How are they going to deal with that? I think they'll probably review um, the way they're handling this, but... As a long-term project, you, when you're looking at policing, you don't look at it in, in, in terms of a single incident, regardless of political statements around it. You look at the overall um, uh, issue and how, how it's being dealt with. I think it's really important to remember as well, th th this is, the far right in Ireland is a conflation of European influences and American influences. Um, they haven't really become political be for lots of different reasons. They, they, they're, they're trying to... Um, uh, sort of make that breakthrough. But the reality of it is that's not going to happen. But what they're doing is they're riding the crest of a wave, which is populism. And right across Europe, popul popular parties are coming to the fore. But what you would do see if you look at the data and the results of various elections across the EU in particular, there have been one or two far-right uh, uh, governments have came to power. But they've been actually, in some cases, with the exception of Hungary and Poland, been quite moderate. And what you've seen is usually they implode or there's a schism within them. So I think it's it's really important to bear this in mind that they're a problem, but they're, they're not an existential threat to democracy okay, in a significant way. Is everything. All right, my thanks to Barry, to Aon, to Louise and to John for coming in and joining us this evening. Next, the sun sets on Rupert Murdoch's reign over his media empire and the real succession. Stay with us. Well, Rupert Murdoch has stepped down as the chairman of his two massive media companies, Fox and News Corp. It brings to an end a seven-decade career which saw him create a vast business empire. Benji Hire joins us live from Washington. Benji, did this come as a surprise despite his 92 years of age? 
Look, it was inevitable at some point, wasn't it? Unless Rupert Murdoch, if I'm being frank, was literally planning to die in the role. He has clung on for an awfully long time, though. In truth, he's been grooming one of his sons to take over for many years. They've been vying against each other for supremacy, played off against one another in this sort of Darwinian struggle, a fight to survive that, of course, in part inspired that hit TV show Succession. It was James Murdoch who, in fact, at one point was the heir apparent. He held a number of senior positions, but after a phone hacking scandal in the UK engulfed the company back in 2011, he resigned from the board over editorial differences, hitting out in particular at the right-wing direction of Fox News and the coverage of climate change by some of his father's outlets. That cleared the path for Lachlan as successor. He's held several high-profile positions at Fox Corp and News Corp as well, making him well-placed to take over from Rupert Murdoch and continue his legacy. Are people confident that it will continue under a figure like Lachlan without somebody like Rupert at the helm? I think the first thing to say is it's, it's very difficult, it's a very different organisation, I should say, that Lachlan is, is looking after to what it was just a few years ago. In 2019, Disney acquired 21st Century Fox. Fox Corporation, though, still remains in the family's grasp. Uh, to answer your question, I think this announcement today could be the start, really, of the story, rather than uh, the end. There was a widely read article published months ago quoting two sources saying that Lachlan's siblings could wrestle back control. And let's look at what Rupert Murdoch said earlier, that his time had come to take on different roles. What does that mean exactly? Will he still be involved in day-to-day -day operations? The Murdoch drama is far from over, and there are big decisions to take to over the political direction at the company. You know, its broadcasters, its newspapers had or overtly back Donald Trump in 2016. Will that happen same time around in 2024? Well, Benji, we will all watch with bated breath. Thank you for bringing us that update. David Robert Grimes is still with me and I'm also joined by Emmett Ryan, tech editor with The Business Post. You're very welcome to the programme. I, for one, was devastated when succession ended. Now we have, it appears, succession part Five, is it? The fifth in, the, in this series? Five, yeah. Would this be season five? Because there will be questions now about what happens to the other children and how they will cope and deal with having the heir apparent, now Lachlan, take over at News Corp. And that itself is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because like Lachlan, if anything, is even more hawkish in the right than Rupert Murdoch is. Uh, so that's kind of terrifying as well for obvious reasons. But when you look at it as well, Rupert has probably made the decision deliberately to go before he feels he's in too ill health at any point in his life going forward to be able to like shape the future. He wants to give Lachlan a bit of time essentially to bed in so it'll be tougher for that heave when it, when it inevitably does come from the other siblings happens in the future because it's only when Rupert Murdoch dies that they'll be in position to make that sort of a heave against him in terms of the shareholding. And it's worth noting that even though Rupert Murdoch is 92, his mother lived to 103. So he may unfortunately be stuck with him for a few more years yet. And he won't have gone away, absolutely he not. He won't have gone away, uh, no. Let's talk, I suppose, first of all, about his influence on the media scene, right? And we'll come to politics in a moment. Um, was he this great disruptor, somebody who brought news to the masses? Or do you think ultimately he just coarsened the discourse that's out there? 
Uh, he certainly was a disruptor, but I think of Dennis Potter, the great uh, screenwriter's uh, last ever interview back in 1994. He named his uh, tumour Rupert after Murdoch because, but the reason is actually very important. It's not just funny because he said no one had done more to pollute the press in the UK than Rupert Murdoch. This is 29 years ago. This is before Fox News existed and his influence has only gotten worse since then. When we look at issues like climate change, the coverage of that, and when we look at sort of, you know, the way he's just basically being a kingmaker in politics across the world, like the role of the, of the press is really to hold politicians to account, not to decide who's actually in charge. And Rupert figured, ah, no, I'll just decide who the boss is. And the other issue within that really is, like when you look at sort of the methods he used, like obviously we see the scandals in the US around people's claiming the election was rigged and Fox obviously going all in on that, but it's essentially been to stir up as much hate, as much anger, sort of create this fog, sort of this like, you know, both directed and directionless anger always out there to never allow people to have nuance, essentially, which has always been his goal. And did he have that influence? Did he have that sway when it came to elections, whether it was in the UK or the US? In, in the UK, he almost certainly did. I mean, Kingmaker is the word Emmett uses, and it's a, it's a very, very good one. But I think the legacy he's, he's leaving is one of toxic reductionism and polarisation. This is not news, this is infotainment, but it's also designed to sell that anger. We know the single biggest motivating factor for people to share articles or do things is anger. And before we even had social media, the, the, the Murdoch press had realised that. But they'd also used that as a vehicle to push opinion for years, even when scientists knew that climate change was a very real thing. It was particularly the Murdoch press that were pushing back against it and ridiculing the reality of climate change. We now live in an era of crisis partly exacerbated by that inherent lack of journalistic integrity. And we're going to, I mean, in some ways he's, he's an heir to yellow journalism. It wasn't a new idea, but it was a very aggressive commercialization of it. And that's before we even get to Fox News' role. He basically in the scaled US. yellow journalism, really, if you're thinking about really it. He really did, yeah, yeah. Uh, bring me through some of the, I suppose, controversies. And there were some really quite disgusting incidents across the seven decades, I, I mean, weren't there? There, there really were. Uh, like, the first one that comes to mind in terms of my lifetime would be Hillsborough, where, you know, the sun... Kelvin McKenzie, and the first two tributes I saw for Rupert Murdoch today were from Kelvin McKenzie of the Sun, ex the Sun, who, of course, led the campaign to blame it on the Liverpool fans, wrongly as well, as we pointed out, led that campaign back in the 80s. Then the next tribute I saw was from Piers Morgan, the phone hacking scandal. And, you know, again, like that, you know, utterly despicable approach. Then, most recently, we were discussing, like, the, you know, the election was, was stolen argument, which Murdoch, you know, was basically pushing so hard, trying to get Dominion, I think it was called, was the name of the company, the machines, you know, to sort of be arguing that these were all rigged. But these were and rigged, that. and that's what and fixed the election for Biden. fixed the election. So, like, they're just three that come to mind pretty quickly. And David and I were even discussing this before we came on air. It's actually kind of hard to narrow them down, David, isn't it, really? The number of <laughs> is. awful things Rupert Murdoch's media has done. And this isn't the case of, oh, well, come on, these are people who just work for him. Murdoch was very much directing that this was what was going to happen. Like, you know, it was like you go back to the 92 election in the UK. It was an all-out effort to ensure that no matter what, a Neil Kinnock Labour government could not win that election because that was seen as going to be dangerous to the Murdoch press and Rupert Murdoch wasn't going to have that. And you brought up something, Dominion, which is something that's just happened this year and that we saw that there was this huge fine, nearly three-quarters of a billion, I think, that they were fined um, because of the claims that they had allowed, because of those defamatory comments that Dominion had sort of rigged the election. Did that finding, did that have any impact, do you think, on somebody like Rupert Murdoch? I think long-term, no. It's probably something they can almost write off losses in some way. But if you even look at the other damages, if we go across the pond to the, the UK, Murdoch, for years, has been trying to undermine the BBC. That's one of his 
one of the things he'd love to do is destroy that. And, and, and for all its faults, it is a bastion of, of, of excellent journalism. That, of course, is not what Murdoch and his, and his successors will want. That, that is actually, they're not a news outfit in that classical way. If you want to talk about other damages they've done, we, we could be here all night listing them. But even in, in my own area of, of health research, the damage that has come from false claims or simplified claims in the Murdoch press has, will, will leave a mark that outlives him unfortunately. Uh, are there any positive? I'm looking at Piers Morgan, who tweeted today, bold, brilliant, visionary leader whose audacity and tenacity built a magnificently successful global media empire. Do you agree with any of that statement? Well, with friends like Piers Morgan, who needs enemies? <laughs> seriously, so the man was so behind the bullocking scandal. Like, seriously. Yeah. So you think there was, there was no positives? Would you say no, that? No, he's like, he is one of the worst things to happen in the 20th and now 21st centuries in terms of, you know, shaping public discourse you know, the future of the world, literally, when it comes to the climate situation. Is his influence changing, though? Because he stuck with traditional media, really, didn't he? Television and newspapers. He didn't move away from that. So will that influence wane now? Uh, it certainly has been diluted somewhat, all right. But he has also sort of created the door for a lot more of these, you know, copycat groups who've gone online and realised, well, it worked for the Murdoch press to go with this stir the hatred. And so he sort of influenced them to go that way. So it may not be his, his direct influence, but certainly they are like sort of the progeny of his work. Now, I think we can just see some of the front pages of the English newspapers tomorrow. Will they see him as we do? For, uh, depending on which paper, but uh, the ones that he doesn't own will pretty much be what we're talking about. All right, look, we have to leave it there for now. But my thanks to all of my guests for joining me this evening too. David and to Emmett for coming in. That is it from us this week. Our programme is available as always on a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, EMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night and take care. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.